Thank you for checking out our sermon here at New Grace. We are excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. It is our prayer that it is a blessing to you. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the message. First, we would love to connect with you. You can find us on Facebook at New Grace BC. Also, be sure to check out our website, reachingroanoke.com. There, you can find out more about who we are and where we are going as a church. Again, thank you for checking out our sermon here at New Grace. Please let us know of any questions you may have or any way that we can help you and your family. Enjoy the message. A.W. Tozer said this, and in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he said, The low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of hundreds of lesser evils everywhere among us. If we would bring back spiritual power to our lives, we must begin to think of God more nearly as he is. What Tozer is, is, is saying here is that one of the issues that we have not just in our world, but in Christianity, is children of God have a low view of God. It's not that we think less, that we think God's not strong or we think God's weak. It's we don't think enough about God. We don't see how incredible and how powerful and how how majestic God truly is. And we as a church and we as God's children, we need a fresh vision of God. We need a fresh understanding of who God is. Isaiah experienced who God is in Isaiah chapter 6. He got a fresh view of God. And when he he saw the majesty of God high and lifted up, he had a fresh vision of God. He was forever changed. And the entire nation of Israel was changed because of how Isaiah saw God in his life. So as I've said in Last couple weeks, we've been going through Psalm 145, and this psalm is a psalm of David's praise, and he is just exalting God and talking about the majesty and the glory and the wonder of God. And I've challenged us all to memorize this verse, this chapter, as we go through. So how many of y'all are following along with us and you're memorizing this chapter as we go through? Okay, how many of y'all are, how many of y'all are ready to quote chapter uh, verses 3 through 5 this morning? All right, we got a couple. All right. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I struggle with five. It's a, it's a, I get tongue-tied on that one. So we're going to try together to, to quote Psalm 145, verses 3 through 5. Let's go. Ready? Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Am I right here? Yes, I am. All right. Great is the, yeah, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise thy name. Ah, here's where I mess up. All right. One generation shall praise thy works to another and shall declare thy mighty acts. And here's the one I have trouble getting. I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty and of thy wondrous works. All right. So if you couldn't quote that that great... Don't feel bad, I couldn't either. I got one and two down like that. I'll extol thee, my God, O King, and praise thy name forever and ever. Every day shall I praise thee, and we'll praise thy name forever and ever. One and two, done. Three through five, eh, man, that's hard. So there's a lot of greatness and glorious and majesty that you get mixed up in there. So uh, have trouble with that. Um, but we've been trying to work through this. I do encourage you 
to try to memorize this scripture. It is wonderful to do. And if you're using, how many of y'all are using that app I told you about verses? It is a really, really good Bible memorization app. It's got games, it's got challenges to help you memorize this scripture, and it's just repeating it, and as you, you go through and repeat it over and over and over and over again, and you try to get your two circles connected, it really does click. And I'll be honest with you, one of the reasons I'm struggling with three through five is I didn't get a whole lot of my circle done this week. I kind of neglected it, so this week i got to work on that, and then the two verses we're going to look at this morning. So this morning, we're going to dive into two new verses. Uh, we're going to study them this morning. We're going to ask some questions about them this morning. And these are the verses we're going to work on memorizing for next week. So here are the verses in Psalms 145, chapter verses 6 through 7. The Bible says, And men shall speak of the might of thy terrible acts, and I will declare thy greatness. They shall abundantly utter the memory of thy great goodness, and shall sing of thy righteousness. So as we, we dive into these verses this morning, we're going to ask the same questions we've been asking each week. And here's the first one. What do these verses teach me about God? What new things can I learn about the character and the, the person of who God is from these verses? Here's the first thing we can learn. Number one, God is awesome. God is awesome. That's a word that we misuse a lot in our culture today. Everything's awesome. And I, some of y'all just had that Lego song jump in your head. Yes, you did. I, saw, I could see you start doing, everything is awesome. <coughs> but we look at everything and we say, oh man, that guy, he just did this, this bike trick. Man, that's awesome. Oh man, they just won the Super Bowl. Man, that's awesome. UVA just beat UNC with a last-second shot at the buzzer, three-point. That is awesome. And look, it's great. I love it. But awesome should only be a word that we use for God. Now, I know what you're thinking. In verse number 6, And men shall speak of thy terrible acts, and I will declare thy greatness. We don't see awesome there. But we do. Look at that phrase, And men shall speak of thy terrible acts. Now, the phrase there, of thy terrible acts, is one word in the Hebrew. It's the Hebrew word yare. And it literally means to inspire reverence or godly fear or awe. It speaks of the quality of being awesome in power, of being awesome in such a way that it produces godly fear and respect in others. When, when used as a noun, it can be translated as awesomeness. So David is saying that men will speak of the power of God's awesomeness. Now in this verse, it's used as a verb. That means that it, it is speaking of the power of God being awesome. The verb used here, it implies that, that God is not awesome for what he does. God is awesome for who he is. God is all, all by himself, without doing anything else. God is just awesome. Now, when you look up the word awesome in the English dictionary, you, you get some interesting and some good definitions. The Macmillan Dictionary says this, says also means very impressive and sometimes 
a little frightening. Here's what the Oxford Dictionary says. Extremely impressive or daunting, inspiring great admiration, apprehension, or fear. So when we're talking about awesome, and we use this word, what we are, we are using to describe something that is big enough to impress us, but also intimidate us at the same time. How many of y'all have ever hiked McAfee's Knob? All right, several of y'all have hiked McAfee's Knob. I mean, April did it several years ago uh, after a snowstorm, and after we got down, we said that was stupid. We will never, ever, 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 ever do that again. Say, what if you want to look at McAfee's Knob? Google Images is a thing. And you can see it off of Google Images. And at McAfee's Knob, it's a, it's, once you survive the hike up, it's a beautiful spot. I mean, look at it. You can see for on a clear day, you can see for miles. It is, it is gorgeous up there in the fall time. I mean, look at this sunset picture. It's just, it's beautiful up there. It's inspiring because of its impressiveness. But it's also kind of dangerous. Every year, 24 people are rescued from McAfee's Knob, 18 of them on average for falling off. Now, granted, sometimes it's because they're stupid. <laughs> Those people got it coming. You do that, you're asking to fall. Sometimes it's just people get too close and the rocks are slippery. And they fall. When me and April were hiking up there, we were hiking up, and on the, almost to the very top, there was this big patch of ice. And as we went around it, I said, honey, watch out for that ice. Don't step on that ice or you're going to fall. Step around it. And so April, like the good, obedient wife she is, stepped directly on the ice. Her feet went out from under, and she fell. I said, I told you, you were going to fall. Now, if she'd been closer to the edge, she'd have fallen off. And she'd have been one of the 18 people who had to be rescued from back. Last year, a college student died because he fell over 150 feet because he was up on McAfee's knob and just, he wasn't doing anything stupid. He wasn't trying to marry Poppins his way down or anything. He just got too close, slipped on the rocks, and he fell. McAfee's knob can be considered awesome. It's beautiful. It's impressive. But you got to fear it. You got to respect it. Don't get too close to the edge. Don't do stupid stuff for a great Instagram pic. Respect what it looks like. And an impressive view, but it's scary. So let me, let me explain to you what awesome means using a book. This is a book that our kids used to have. We, we got rid of it and I had to buy it again this week. It's a kid's book. Is a blue whale the biggest thing there is? So this story, this book, the author talks about what the biggest thing might be. And he starts with a blue whale. A blue whale is the largest animal that has ever lived on our planet. It's massive. It's huge. Just its flipper, just a little flipper there, is bigger than every other animal on the planet. It is a massive creature. It, is, it can grow to be over 100 feet long and weigh over 150 tons. Blue whales are huge, but the author asks, is the blue whale the biggest thing there is? And it says, but of course, the blue whale is not the biggest thing there is. And he, he goes on to talk about Mount Everest. And he says, if you would take jars that were big enough to fit 100 blue whales inside of, 
Remember, blue whales are 100 feet long, 100 feet tons. You had a big enough jar to fit 100 of these blue whales inside of it, and you hollowed out Mount Everest. You could fill Mount Everest with one over a million jars of 100 blue whales each. That's pretty big. And he says, but of course, Mount Everest isn't the biggest thing there is. But he says, if you were to take Mount Everest and you were to stack them 100 Mount Everests high, it would be just a whisker on the face of our planet. We'd barely even notice it from space. But then he says, of course, our planet is not the biggest thing there is. Compared to our planet, the earth is humongous. You can fit one million earths inside the sun. So the sun can hold a million earths stacked high with a hundred Mount Everests, packed full of a million jars of a hundred blue whales, but that's not the biggest thing there is. He talks about a star in our galaxy, in our solar system, or our galaxy called Antares. He says, Antares is so big that you can fit 50 million of our Earths, I'm sorry, of our suns that are packed with a million Earths and a hundred Everests and a million whales. You can pack all, you can pack 50 million uh, suns inside of Antares. So Antares has got to be the biggest thing there is. But then he says, of course it's not, because Antares is inside our galaxy known as the Milky Way. The Milky Way contains billions of stars the same size or bigger of Antares, not including all the space in between. And so our, our Milky Way contains billions of these, these giant-sized stars plus Everything else. But then he says, but of course, the Milky Way isn't the biggest thing there is. Because the Milky Way is just one galaxy in the universe. And the universe contains billions of galaxies the size of the Milky Way. But of course, the universe is mostly empty. Most of the universe is empty space. And we actually have no idea what the universe looks like because we can't get a picture big enough of it. This is just a portion of it. We can never see. We have no idea how big the universe is. And here's how he, he ends the book. He says, The universe is all the galaxies and all the dark space between them. It is everything that exists anywhere in space and time. Because it is so amazingly big, No one knows what the whole universe really looks like, but here's what a tiny part of it might look like, showing some of the galaxies and the different kinds of galaxies. Then he says, the universe is the biggest thing we know. More than likely, I like how he prefaces that, more than likely, we can call it the biggest thing there is. So he says that the universe is more than likely the biggest thing there is. But what do we do with Isaiah chapter 40, 40 verse 26? 
But the Bible says, lift up your eyes on high and behold who hath created these things. What things? The universe, the galaxies, the Milky Way, Antares, Earth, our sun, the blue whale, Mount Everest. Who has created these things that bringeth out their host by number? He calleth them by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is a strong in power, not one faileth. The word greatness there is the Hebrew word meaning bigness. So what Isaiah is saying here is when I, when I understand this truth, only one word can describe God. Awesome. God is so powerful, is so big, is so majestic that he created everything we know, we see, we can taste, we can smell. He created the vast galaxies and the, the universe and his, he, he, just, he created all of it and he sits on the throne of heaven and the Bible says God is awesome. What that tells us is because God is awesome, there is nothing that is too big for God. There is nothing in your life God can't handle. You know, some of us, we came in with, with problems this morning. We had challenges, we had, we had struggles, we have obstacles, we have difficulties in our life that we're dealing with and struggling with and wrestling with and we don't know what we're going to do. But this tells us that nothing is too big for God to handle. It may be too big for you. It may be too big for me. It may be too big for all of us put together. But it's not too big for God. God is awesome. We need to do like, like this book does. We need to take our problems and compare them to the awesomeness of God. Yes, I've got health issues, but God created me. God made me with his hands. God loves me and cares for me. And yeah, I've got financial issues, but my father owns a cattle on a thousand hill. He owns a gold in every mine. So take your problems and compare them to the bigness of God. And when we do that, we find encouragement and comfort and strength because we know God is Awesome. But there's another thing this verse tells us. Not only is God awesome, God is good. Look at verse 7. They shall abundantly utter the memory of thy great goodness. The word goodness here is a Hebrew word that means moral excellence. It's what David was talking about in Psalms 119.68 when he says, Thou art good and doest good. Good is not just who God is. Good is what God does. God is good, and God does good things. Eddie W. Tozer said this. He goes that God is good <coughs> is taught or implied on every page of the Bible and must be received as an article of faith as impregnable as the throne of God. As sure as the throne of God is not going to move, God is good. That means that God himself is the standard of goodness. 
And all the goodness in the world must be measured against him. Jesus, in fact, said this. Jesus said, there is none good but one. That is God. All that God does is good. Which means for God to do something that's not good means that he's not God because God is good and God can only do good things. So what that means is when something in your life appears to not be good, we can know that whatever we're going through now will work out for our good later because God is good. That's why David said in Psalms 119.71, he said, it is good for me that I had been afflicted that I might learn thy statute. See, David could look at things in his life that were painful. He could look at things in his life that caused frustration, that caused pain. He could say, even in the hurt and the pain and the frustration, it is God's goodness working in my life. Because he says, God, when I'm afflicted, it's good because I learn about you. I learn thy statutes. Everything God does is good. But that also means that God is the source of all good in the world. James 1.7 says this. says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. It cometh down from the Father of light, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. God is good himself, and he does good, and everything that is good comes from God. God is good. That means everything in my life has been filtered through the goodness of God. God is good, and all he does is good. That's why in the Psalms, David could say, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. You may not be able to see all of his goodness in what you're in right now. But the Bible tells us that because of the goodness of God, one day, maybe on earth, maybe in heaven, but one day you'll be able to look back at what you're going through now and say that was the goodness of God. God is good. So we see that God is awesome. We see God is good. And thirdly, we see God is righteous. Look at the end of verse 7. And shall sing of thy righteousness. The word righteousness there means blameless conduct. The, the noun form of this verb describes right attitudes and right actions. Here's what Bill Bright says about the righteousness of God. He says, all righteousness within the entire universe has its origin in him. Everything God does is perfectly right in every way. For God, righteousness is not an external standard that he must adhere to. Righteousness is part of his very nature. It emulates from his inner being. It is impossible for God to do anything wrong. God is righteous and God always does right. That's why the Bible says in 1 John 5, 17, all unrighteousness is sin. See, unrighteousness means an act or a deed that violates the standard 
of right conduct or violates the standard of righteousness. And so unrighteousness is acting apart from who God is because God is righteous. What that means is any time we step across God's boundary, it is unrighteousness, and unrighteousness is sin. Is, is sin. So here's what that means for us. The only way to ever be right with God is to be perfectly righteous. To never step across God's boundary. To never violate God's righteousness. It's good news, isn't it? Not for me and not for you. Because the Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. That means we are hopeless. But God is awesome. And God is good. And God is so awesome, and God is so good, that he made a way for us to become righteous. 2 Corinthians verse 5.21 For he hath made him, God hath made Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin. Now real quick, that who knew no sin, that's not talking about us. At all. Even close. It's talking about Jesus. God took Jesus, who never knew sin, who never violated God's law, who was completely righteous. He took Jesus, made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we, the sinners, the unrighteous, the condemned, the doomed, might be made the righteousness of God in him. Here's what that means. On the cross, Jesus, who was God in the flesh, was 100% God. God in the flesh, on the cross, had my sin and your sin and the whole world's sin poured out on him. All the punishment of sin was placed on him. He took the full wrath of God for sin he never committed. He became my sin. And he took the penalty for us. He he had none of his own. He had no sin of his own. He took our sin on him and he died for our sin. Why? So we could be made righteous for and before God. So Jesus died. But he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the grave, declaring to the world and everybody that God had accepted his sacrifice as a perfect payment for our sins. And so when we put our faith in the finished work of Jesus, a great exchange happens. He becomes my sin, and I become his righteousness. Because of Jesus... God looks at me as righteous. He looks at me as righteous as God himself. That is perfect righteousness. Now, people always say, you know, when you're, you're saved, it means you're sanctified as just as if you, you're justified just as if you'd never sinned. See, God doesn't look at me as just as if I'd never sinned because that means I could have sinned, and that's Adam's righteousness. He looks at me as God's righteousness And God not only never has sinned, God can't sin. God is perfect 
righteousness. So we have God's righteousness. That's how good God is. That's how awesome God is. But now we come to the second question. What is, how should I respond to this truth? Number one, we should fear God. That doesn't mean that we should be terrified of God. Although, if you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, if you don't have the righteousness of God on your account, if you're trying to get to heaven or earn righteousness by your own works, you should be terrified because you are standing under the judgment of God. But if you're saved and you're as righteous as God because of his work on the cross, because of his death, his burial, his resurrection, his payment for your sin, if you're saved tonight, we should, it doesn't mean to be terrified of God. It's to, to be in all of his awesomeness. Again, in verse 6, the word terrible means awesome. It means to, to give respect to. To give reverence to. Not anxiety of what God may do to us, but respect and love for the authority that produces a desire to please God. Because God is awesome, we should have reverential fear that produces a desire to please Him. Proverbs one seventeen says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of of knowledge. Knowledge is walking in fear of God because I am in awe of God and I want to please God and honor God with my life. We should fear Him. Second thing we should do, we should make His awesomeness known. I do this with my lips and my life. Verse 6, look at it again. He says, And men shall speak of the might of thy terrible acts, and I will declare thy greatness. The verse 6 says we are to speak and declare the greatness of God. The word speak there literally means to use words, to tell people about the awesomeness and the goodness and the greatness of God. But declare means to be made known. We make known by what we say, but also how we live and how we treat people. So I am to show or make God's awesomeness known with my lips and with my life. But then there's a third thing we should do. We should declare the goodness of God. Every one of us have opportunities on a daily basis to declare the goodness of God. Verse 7 says, They shall abundantly utter the memory of thy great goodness. The Hebrew phrase, abundantly utter, literally means to gush out, to bubble over with. It means that our life should be marked by just telling people how good God is. When we've experienced the goodness of God, the stories of his goodness in our lives should just gush out of us. One thing that should gush out of us is the gospel. If you've experienced the great exchange... If God has become your sin and you've become his righteousness because of his death, his burial, and his resurrection, it should gush out of you as you tell people. We should tell people of the goodness of God. But there's one more thing that we should do. We should joyfully sing to God. We should sing joyfully. God, look at the end of verse 7. And shall sing of thy righteousness. 
You know, every Sunday I stand up here and I sing with the choir and I watch y'all. Some of you sing joyfully. Some of you have a smile on your face. Some of you lift your hand. Some of you don't care what people are saying or thinking. You just, you sing joyfully to God. Some of you sing, but it's not very joyfully. It's, I will sing of the goodness of God. Really? Maybe you should tell your face about it. Some of you don't sing at all. And I know, so maybe you don't know the song. I get it. Maybe it's a new song, you don't understand it. That's fine. But learn it and sing it. But what do you do when you're alone in your car? Listen to Spirit FM and a good song comes on. Or maybe you're not listening to Spirit FM. Maybe you're listening to, I don't know, WYYD or something. And a country song comes on. How many of y'all, whether it's Christian or not, if you're in your car, you're by yourself, or even you're some friends and your favorite song comes on, man, you just crank it up and sing right along. How many of y'all do that? All right, not enough of you. Here's something you need to understand. When you're in your car, no one else can see you. Pick your nose, do whatever you want to do. You're invisible to the cars around you. But sing. And one thing I love about our kids is we're in the car together. If one of their favorite songs comes on, it used to be uh, the lion one. Uh, my, yeah, that's it. You know, God's not he's truly love. He's living on the inside. Like, yeah, okay. It used to be God's not dead. We turn on, God's not dead would come on. I'd have to crank that thing up as far as I could go. And then, God's not dead. He's only alive. He's living on the inside. And they, did, they were just, they sounded terrible. They look stupid, but you know what? They weren't singing for us. They're singing for God. And we should all sing joyfully to God, especially in church together. But you don't have to just worship God in church. You can worship God in your car. Turn on some music and just praise God. And, and maybe you don't like, turn on the cathedral, whatever you sing. Southern gospel, whatever it is, just sing joyfully to God. The word sing is the Hebrew word ranan. It means to cry out, to shout for joy, or to give a ringing cry. It's translated different ways in the, in the Bible and other places. And other, the, another way it's translated in the Bible, it's translated as rejoice. It's translated as shout for joy. It's translated sing for joy or shout for Praise. Why do we sing praise songs every week? Because it's not about you being a good singer or sounding good. It's about God being awesome. It's about God being good. It's about God being righteous. So we stand and we loudly sing praises to God because he's worth it. Again, there's no new truth here. We know God is awesome. We know God is good. We know God is righteous. But are we responding like we should? Do we respect God? Do we make his awesomeness known? Do we declare his goodness? And do we sing joyfully to God? 